Young Goodman Brown by Nathaniel Hawthorne was published in 1835. It takes place in 17th century Puritan New England and follows the titular character as he sets out into the forest to meet the devil and finds he is not the only one. In this episode, we will discuss the main theme of corruption and each man's sin, as well as the excellent way Hawthorne sets us in the story. This is Analytical. Hello, hello. I'm Hannah. And I'm John. And we are the biggest procrastinators ever. It's true. We just want to like start off by apologizing for this being pretty late. Um, we know we said it was going to be on Thanksgiving, but then we had some issues getting recording done and still trying to figure out our new mics. And then I know we're both working on our finals, so it's just been a lot, but we're glad you guys came back. So to start us off today, I am actually just going to start at the beginning. At the start of the story, there's some knight hinted at, and we're not really sure if, I was not really sure if it was going to be like a cheating thing, because Faith was just not so sure where she wanted her husband to go, or if it was a specific knight in question that Faith was worried about. Yeah, I don't know. It's very unclear in the story. It doesn't really explicitly state. And even as we go throughout the whole story, you still aren't sure what exactly about this knight is kind of calling all the townspeople there. Well, I want to backtrack here a little bit. We don't even know if this is real, first of all. It's not really clear whether this is just a dream that he has or if this is, like, his actual, like, what he's experiencing. That's for sure a big thing in the story. And later on, he even says he wasn't sure if he fell asleep and awoke again or if he actually experienced all these things that night. And I think an important thing there is that it doesn't really matter to him whether it's real or not. His whole life is changed even after. Which kind of segues into our main point we wanted to talk about, the theme of the story. So the theme of the story, to me, seems to be the corruption within the Puritan community and men falling prey to sin, especially their own sins. It seems like each member of the community that he thought was a pillar of the community, a holy pillar, is actually corrupt in some way. Yeah, his whole worldview is kind of shifted by this news as well. I mean, he keeps calling back to Goody Cloyce, and I think that's really interesting because that seems to be a impactful woman in his life who he just finds out, like, speaks with the devil, and it really affects his worldview, I think. It kind of changes everything he sees. I actually specifically wrote that out and was going to ask you about it, but I guess we'll do that now. He said, that old woman taught me my catechism. And there was a world of meaning in this simple statement. Hawthorne specifically pointed out that that statement was a very convoluted statement. So I was actually going to ask you, why do you think, or what do you think the other meanings are? The, of the sentence? Yes, because Hawthorne states that there was a world of meaning in this simple statement. I think just what I said, like it just represents his whole worldview shifting. That's a fair point. I just feel like there might be a little bit something more to it. How he says, that old one taught me my catechism. Now, I know from, like, a Catholic standpoint, you know, First Communion is pretty important. And so I was wondering if it could also be later on there is a basin of water and he's not sure if it's blood or water. So did the woman actually give him a diseased communion? That is a really interesting viewpoint. I hadn't considered that. I don't really see it happening. No, I don't either. But it does. I think that might be what Hawthorne is hinting at with that world of meaning. So I feel like Hawthorne specifically pointed out that line so that the reader would be drawn to it and, you know, maybe also question the motives of the people in the town. I think that can also be pointed out later on about how Goody Cloyce seems to be drawing faith in his wife and how that is also a cause for concern for him and that does eventually lead to his corruption. I didn't really see it as leading to his corruption. I don't really know if he was corrupted throughout this story. He kind of stood fast in the whole face of it. He never really fell victim to the devil's corruption. 
But did he not? Because it eventually led to his downfall of his virtuism and his belief because he started to suspect everyone else of like being after him. I think that's what the story is supposed to be about is that, you know, if you think you're higher and mightier than everyone else, that you start to look down upon them and start to doubt everyone. And it actually brings about your own downfall. I don't see young Goodman Brown, a random citizen of his town, as high and mightier over anyone else. And I don't think he does either. I can agree that he didn't at the beginning, and he was so shocked that his father, his grandfather, his pastor, his deacon, that all these people were here with the devil, and that it actually brought about some doubt within him to doubt the holiness of these people, and so he stopped listening to their sermons, he stopped believing them, and I think it did bring about a higher sense of righteousness, that he was better than them because he could see through the devil's tricks. You see, I don't necessarily even think he still thought he was better, he just thought that everything else got worse. Which might have resulted in him getting better. I don't think his conscious thought was, oh, I'm so much better now that I know the truth about all of them. It was more of a, oh, everything is so much worse. I really think I really got more of this shattered worldview as opposed to this piousness. Does a shattered worldview not bring about a piousness, though? I don't think it does. I think a shattered worldview can bring about a lot of things. And in this case, it just brought about a major kind of depression for this guy. I think he may have also had a savior complex. That's why I kind of think it's like a piousness and a like high mightiness because he pulled the girl away from Goody Cloyce. He ignored his wife, but he still stayed with her. I think he was doing it out of a sense of duty. He's like, I need to save everyone else because the devil is corrupting everyone, which did bring about his downfall. So I think the devil won. I would agree the devil won. I would agree at that point. But I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say I saw those other actions as him being, like, cold and, like, distant. I mean, maybe those are good words to use. But I didn't see it as him being higher, like, feeling better and being like, oh, I have to do this out of duty. I thought it was more of a, like fear thing he was legitimately scared for the safety of those people i think it might have been motivated by fear i think that's a good point but it does say later on when they're praying he glares at them he gives them scathing looks because he doesn't think they're truly praying properly which eventually brings about his own loss of his beliefs because he's not actually following through with it he's not praying he's not worshiping he's being kind of judgmental about it and saying they're not doing it because they actually love him i guess i just didn't pick up on that so I think this actually brings about a bigger theme of corruption within the Puritans themselves. Yes, they're really famous for the Salem witch trials. Yes, which this actually takes place in Salem. And that brings about another point of how well Hawthorne does to set us in the time and place. He brings up that the old man, which we are assuming is the devil, came from Boston. And they talk about like hearing the tower from Salem. And they also talk about King William's court, specifically for young Goodman Brown's time, and also his father before him of King Philip's court. So I think it just goes to show the actual time frame we are in and solidifying us in the 17th century. And then also, Hawthorne wrote this in the 1830s. They would not have talked with the these and thous as much. And so it really just sets you even further in the time, where it's almost a little hard to understand at times because of the language. Yeah, this short story is a really good example of historical fiction. It really does set you back in the time. And I I mean, from what I've heard about Puritan times, it seems fairly accurate to the times. Maybe less witches. It really makes me think of The Crucible, which was not written by Nathaniel Hawthorne, but that does pull upon the Salem Witch Trials. And then also Hawthorne's other work, The Scarlet Letter. I really felt a lot of The Scarlet Letter in this, of like people's secret corruption, and you don't know what's happening behind closed doors. I, I do agree. I also saw a lot of The Scarlet Letter, and I think that's why I didn't enjoy it as much. I didn't really like The Scarlet Letter, I'll be honest. but I love the plot twist. I won't reveal it, but no spoilers on this, but I was 
Oh my gosh, it still gets me. I wish I could go back, erase my mind, and read it again for like the jaw-dropping reaction I had. Everyone's allowed to like other things, obviously. <laughs> I just did not personally like the Scarlet Letter as much. I don't think this was my favorite short story by far, but I do think it does a really good job of showing a consistent theme throughout and then consistent use of language to set the setting. And actually, these specific events um, in the foreknote of my copy says that they are based on Hawthorne's own ancestors. He had a great-great-grandfather who had a Quaker woman stripped half-naked and roped to a cart that pulled her through the streets while a constable followed behind whipping her. Another one of his kinsmen burned a Native American village down and, as a magistrate, actually presided over the witch trials. So Nathaniel Hawthorne had some family that I think he would have rather have forgotten about as we can see through his writing. Which I think why he writes so much about Puritan New England. He was, you know, probably would have heard stories from other family members throughout his, of his history and would have known, been pretty familiar at least with the Puritan culture. I think it's even interesting how the narrator of the story, which isn't necessarily Hawthorne, but they kind of hint at that the Native Americans are fearful and actually the devil themselves. So I think it goes to show further how the Puritans kind of isolated the Native Americans in that they came to this land and found and just made them out to be the devil and the wrong man, and that would have been furthering their corruption. Yeah, that's definitely a good example. I think the worst corruption to me that sticks out throughout all the stories about the Puritans, such as The Crucible, Scarlet Letter, and this one, is the hypocrisy. The hypocrisy is definitely the worst evil that sticks out to me because you have these people in high positions doing these great things, trying to act all high and mighty, as Hannah was saying in this story that happens, and just trying to set forth a good example, and then they're doing all the terrible things they're condemning behind everyone's back. No, for sure. That's like the main theme of the Crucible and even the Scarlet Letter is that they condemn their main characters and then they're actually the ones participating in these evil deeds. And instead of telling someone what actually happened, they would sentence someone to death than actually have someone else know the truth. I will say that's not necessarily the main theme of our stories. No, but I think the connection is definitely there as well. Yeah, no one's getting sentenced to death, but you can see that it's happened in their past and that their corruption exists and that it's still spread throughout. I will say, in this, I did kind of think about the corruptions that you've seen in the Catholic Church, too. I even wrote down the church with a capital C. That's what they kind of refer to as the Catholic Church. But you just see so many well, priests and incidents kind of getting pushed under the rug. It's just that positions of power attract terrible people. And power can go to someone's head very easily. And I think that's a very good lesson that we can like learn from looking at these positions of power. When someone's in a position of power, they're more likely to mess up. That's fair. And I would almost argue that they're not more likely to mess up. It's just that they're more likely to get noticed when they do mess up. Because I would hate to think about how many things happen to I, lower people. I agree with you 100%. But I also think it's a little bit of the power thing. I do kind of want to point out that it's interesting that Goodman Brown wants to hide his wife from this faith. That he tells her to go to bed by dusk and she'll be safe. He thinks of his wife so fraily. He said it would, would kill her to think it. To think that of what he was actually doing. If she knew what was happening, she would just drop dead. When it does seem like she knows what's happening because she ends up there as well, or at least in his kind of fever dream he has, she ends up there. Yeah, there definitely is this kind of frailty, I agree, around his wife. And it is kind of weird in parts. I think his wife represents his, like, innocence. So that when she is kind of, like, converted, as they say in the story, it really has an effect on Goodman Brown because that's him losing his innocence. 
I think we can even specifically look at the symbol of the pink ribbon in her hair. How he, they even point that out, that he can see it in the trees, that it's gotten tangled and that he can see the ribbon dangling there. And then he sees his wife without the ribbons. I think it specifically shows how he has lost that innocence and how she has lost it as well. To kind of do a rough segue, I want to talk a little bit about the structure of the story. So in the first half, we see lots of rough dialogue with not a lot of thought or narration. We see Goodman Brown talking to his wife, Faith, and then talking to the man. And you just see him kind of talking the whole time. Even when he's thinking to himself, it shows it as dialogue. But then as we get deeper into the forest, there is just more narration of the scene of the story and what is happening. And he's not speaking as much. I just think that's an interesting thing to see. Well, I think that brings into question the true structure of the story. Is it a dream that this man's having or is it actually happening? Is it a real occurrence that he sees the devil meeting with all these people? Did he actually meet with the devil? Did he know he was going to meet the devil? Because he does kind of like allude that he knows what he's doing. So when, I guess, does the dream start slash end if there was a dream? That's a fair point. And I think it's interesting that it does seem like he leaves his wife that night because she asks him to stay. And that'd just be an interesting thing to, if that was a dream, to dream about leaving her. And then I also, I have the question of what is he going to the devil for? Or what's anyone going to the devil for? I, I thought there was going to be a reason he was going there. I still think it kind of was hinting at that he may have cheated on her before and he was trying to protect her from this. He was trying to do something for her, it seemed like, but I never got a clear answer of what that was. Well, and I think we could definitely understand that he was seeking something. It's not like he was just having midnight chat to the devil. It does seem like his father and grandfather sought something when they did pull upon it for the Quaker and for the burning of the Native American village. The devil was there aiding them. So I just wonder what he needed help with to get, I guess. If history is any truthful source, it's nothing good. That's fair. <laughs> And I may be pulling upon the crucible for it as well of like he cheated on her because that happened. Spoiler alert. <laughs> but I'm just pulling upon past knowledges and trying to equate them to what he is doing. Yeah, which leads me to believe that I think he would have been a little bit more clear if this was a cheating thing. So I don't necessarily think if I can see it as cheating, I think he would have more strongly alluded to a woman as opposed to the devil if it was a cheating thing. We also see the devil take different shapes, which is I think where a lot of the confusion of the dream, if it's not a dream, comes from because I got confused of did the devil go off into the woods and Goodman Brown stayed on the path to talk to Goody Cloys or did Goodman Brown go into the forest and the devil stayed on but took Goodman Brown's shape. It was just a very weird sequence of events and I feel like I kind of had to read it a few times and still I'm not sure what actually happened. It definitely was very jarring. And so I can definitely see your theory that this is all a dream but I still think the dream affected him enough where it did end up corrupting him and having him be a more sinful man. Yeah, if we wanted to look into this a little more biblically, then we can like kind of compare this to a seeing a like biblical setting, like what a, a uh, I don't know, I don't know my Bible. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay. I mean, the devil tested Jesus. Is that kind of what you're hinting at? I don't know. Like a test? Not really a test so much as just like a uh, acting in mysterious ways kind of thing. So where the devil's working through a medium. So this is an actual event. The devil did actually do all these things. And this is the devil's way of showing young good young Goodman Brown, but it appears as a dream, which kind of gives that other level to it of like, oh, is this like real life? Is this a fantasy? Am I just going crazy? I can see your point of it being maybe the devil or even God himself showing Goodman Brown how the devil has worked with these men. If it was God, then young Goodman Brown failed, I'm pretty sure. I mean, either way, the Bible kind of hints that God tests people and that, you know, the devil tests them as well. I think the devil won this guy. That's a very interesting connection you've made. 
So in the last paragraph, it does seem like the narrator says it was a dream of evil omen. So it does kind of seem like it solidifies your theory that it was a dream. I don't necessarily think that's physically stating it was a dream. I think we're supposed to take this meaning of dream a little more loosely than a physical, or I guess just a literal interpretation. I can see that as well, that he thought it was a dream, so therefore he says it's a dream. Yes. Like, young Goodman Brown has made up his mind about it, but I don't know if we should yet. And I will point out here that it doesn't seem like we have an unreliable narrator. We do have a third-person narrator. Not an omniscient one, but like a limited view. So it's not like we have to be distrustful of young Goodman Brown. We just have to take the experiences in and kind of think of what we should think of the narrator. You're right that this isn't a um, necessarily biased narrator, but I think all narrators carry their own amount of bias. Even if this is a limited view narrator that is only telling the story from what he sees, he obviously sees a lot. So I don't know if this is Young Goodman Brown himself telling us this, or if this is the devil, or if this is just a narrator between the two, but he's seeing a lot, so I think he has some dice in this game whichever way it is. So therefore, I think all narrators are a little biased. That's a good point, and I like your metaphor of the dice in the game. This was actually my first time reading this story, and I thought that was really interesting. It was actually my first time as well. It was nothing like I expected. I expected a little bit more crucibly, like, Scarlet Letter seriousness. There's a little bit of jovialness in this story, I think. Care to elaborate? It just doesn't feel very serious. I was reading it, and I was kind of like taking it like, as a joke, like, oh, he's going to go meet the devil in the woods and they're going to see all these crazy things. Like, in the line where it says that she taught me my catechism, it doesn't sound like the desperate ramblings of a man. It sounds like a funny beat. That's an interesting point of view on it. I don't think I saw it as kind of comical. I can, I can agree that it's not as serious as The Scarlet Letter. The Scarlet Letter is definitely a very somber reading, and you just feel so sad for the main character the whole time. But this one, I didn't feel sad for him. I kind of was like, yeah, you got what's coming to you. You went to see the devil. Which maybe just shows I'm not a very sympathetic person. I do want to point out, though, with the kind of the sympatheticness of it, <laughs> Goodman Brown doesn't seem to be a sympathetic person either at the end of his life. It does say that no one really came to his funeral, that besides the people that were expected to. It seems like they didn't even carve anything upon his tombstone. His dying hour was gloom. And that's how we end the story. So I think it really does just go to show... That if you fall prey to your sins, you die alone. That was a really interesting interpretation. I definitely didn't see much of that happening. I could definitely agree he didn't die happy. It was a very terrible death, and it definitely does speak to the, like, loss of innocence corruption that happened. And you could read it as that, just his, like, innocence dying, not necessarily him, if you wanted to take a more metaphorical route with it. But it does seem like it's almost supposed to be a religious omen a, a little bit, where if you fall prey to your sins, you die in gloom. Well, I think that wraps it up for this week's episode. We're really ending on a high note here. Thanks for joining in, and we'll catch you next time. Analytical is created, hosted, and produced by Hannah and John Newland. It is edited by John Newland. The artwork was created by Hannah Newland using Logo Maker and is owned by Hannah and John Newland. The theme music you're jamming to now is created by John Bartman, and you can check out more of his work at his website, johnbartman.com. Web design is by Hannah Newland, and you can find us at analyticalpod.wixsite.com analytical. And you can find that link in the description. All our social pages are at analyticalpod, and you can email us at analyticalpod at gmail.com to reach out and discuss your thoughts on this episode, a chat about literature, or life. Please rate and review us, and subscribe to our podcast, and tell your friends. It will help other people find and enjoy as well.